Welcome to the Lightshine Church Podcast. I'm Rob Douglas, the organizing pastor of Lightshine Church, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. Well, I uh, never conceived or thought that I would be preaching on Zoom, but here we are. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you guys can applaud if it goes well. If not, then, you know, just snicker. But uh, Zoom is a good alternative to uh, what we have to do in uh, this time of COVID-19. Many years ago, I read a little book by an English uh, Anglican priest by the name of J.B. Phillips. You may remember the name J.B. Phillips. Uh, you may even be familiar with his translation of the New Testament back in the 50s, 60s. That was, you know, the new big thing in terms of Bible translations. But he wrote this little book, Your God is Too Small. His thesis is in that book that for many worshipers, the Sunday school concept of God that they have grown up with was inadequate to their life situation. He desires his readers to reassess what he calls, and these are his words, their truncated theology and develop a theology that is big enough for their current experience of life and big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. And his first two or three chapters are taken up with theologies of God that he considered to be too small. Now, they may have a grain of truth, but by themselves, they're inadequate. Here are some of Phillips's uh, views of God that he found in his parishioners and in the Christians in in England. Uh, The heavenly bosom, yeah, he uses that word, and it had to do with escapism that, that God brings me into his protection and everything's fine and I can just tune out the world. Then there's a resident policeman. The God is like a policeman who's watching us, looking down and seeing our sin and like whack-a-mole is going to beat us over the head if we don't behave. Another's the grand old man, that God is this great white-bearded old man, very kind and gentle, but that's about all. It's not much else. And he has managing director that God created the world, and then he left it, and he manages from a distance. He's like a dis- distant landlord. And the cosmic Santa Claus, that God is like Santa Claus, seeing who's naughty and nice, and then giving out presents based on our behavior, whether it's good or bad. And the parental hangover, that our faith in God is simply extension of our parents' faith, and we haven't owned it for ourselves. Now, you might identify with some of these, or at least you've seen them in your friends. But the reason I bring up J.B. Phillips' little book, Your God is Too Small, because what he is calling Christians to do, I think, in the book is what Job is doing in the book of Job, especially the final four chapters that we're going to be reading portions from to reassure our ideas of nature and the character of God and align our thinking with the revelation of God in Job and in the rest of the Bible, we have to ask the question, is our God too small? So let's pause now and invite God's presence into the reading and the proclamation of God's word. 
Gracious and loving God, we come before you thanking you that you are God who reveals yourself to us. You haven't remained hidden in the far corners of the universe, but you've made yourself known. Make yourself known this morning as we read scripture, as it is proclaimed, and may we hear no other voice but yours. Open our minds to think your thoughts after you. Open our hearts that we might respond and open our ears that we hear no other voice than that of yours alone. And this we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, the passages that we are going to read are part of one long section of four chapters in two parts. And these two parts are mirror images of each other. Both begin with God addressing Job, instructing him to stand up like a man, like a defendant in a trial and be questioned by the prosecuting attorney. Then at the end of these rapid fire questions that God is giving to Job, Job responds. So we see God's questions and Job's answer. So let's read uh, a portion of these four chapters. We're not going to read the whole thing, so you can relax. First is Job 38, verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question, and you shall answer me. And then God begins to speak or give the questions to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Great poetry in, in this patch. And, and I would encourage you, after worship is over sometime today, read all four chapters, 38 through uh, the beginning of 42. Wonderful poetry. Then Job's first response to God in Job 40, verses 3 through 9. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, and I will say no more. And the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, like our text today, that is one big section with two parts, and each part has two parts. God's question and Job's answers. That's going to be... Hold on. I knew there would be a glitch somewhere. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two things. 
Job's, I mean, God's questions to Job and Job's response. But one of the things I want you to notice right at the beginning is that it is God who takes the initiative. God comes to Job and asks Job questions. And a little later in the sermon, I'm going to explain why that's important. But let's look at God's questions first. These questions have two characteristics. They're rhetorical and performative. God fires a machine gun burst of questions to Job, not expecting a response. Now, all of the questions that God is asking Job have to do with creation. That's why it's so wonderful and why I encourage you to read it, because it's just wonderful uh, poetry about God's created order. He asks Job such things as, as, can Job create the rain? Can he create the storms that blow all the animals? And the answer, of course, is of course not. And then he answers the question that we read, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And the answer for Job then is not even a twinkle in his great, 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 great grandfather's eye. Now, we all know that when a speaker uses rhetorical questions, the speaker's not expecting a response because rhetorical questions aren't really questions, they're statements. For example, if I say to you, how about those Niners? Now, I'm not expecting you to go into a soliloquy of how wonderful the Niners were. What I'm saying to you is the San Francisco 49ers had a great NFL season this past year and went all the way to the Super Bowl. They even had three good quarters in the Super Bowl. But unfortunately, the Super Bowl, the football has four quarters, and they didn't do well in the fourth quarter. So what I'm doing when I say, how about those Niners? I'm making a statement about how good the season was for the Niners. The statement that God is making by asking all of these beautiful poetic questions of, uh, coming from nature is, Job, check your views of who I am because your concept of me, your God, is too small. I think these passages, 38 to the beginning of 42, are calling us, inviting us to do the same work. To ask ourselves, are our constructs of God adequate? Are they in line with God that we encounter in Scripture? God's questions are rhetorical. But the, God's making a statement. Job, your view, I think, is too small. The second characteristic of all of these questions that God is asking is their performative. Now, performative is a word that scholars use to indicate how the ancient Hebrews understood uh, language. Performative speech means, or meant to the Hebrews, the word spoken caused the thing the word is spoken about to become a reality, to be. Words for the ancient Hebrews weren't just puffs of air, vocalizations. They believed that words had power, power to do what was said. They don't just describe things. They don't just give names and label things, but words have the power to create the reality that is spoken of. The best example of performative speech is Genesis chapter one. 
the first creation account. God created the heavens, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the first day, God said, let there be light. And notice that all seven or six days of creation, God says, let there be, let there be light, let there be night and day, let there be land. And each time, and it, and it was so. I love the fact that if each day of creation, God looks at it and says, and it is good. But you see, that's performative speech. That's how the Hebrews understood it. God simply spoke the universe and the worlds in, into existence. The word had the power to create. Some of Jesus's miracles are performative speech. I mean, he speaks and the blind man is healed. He speaks and, and the little girl is healed. He says to Lazarus, his good friend who had died and was in the tomb for four days. He says, Lazarus, come forth. You know the old joke about that? You know how many people were in the tomb with Lazarus? There were three altogether. Three and then Lazarus, because Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Okay, old joke. You can take it for what it's worth. But Jesus spoke and Lazarus came to life. On a hillside, when Jesus is preaching to a crowd of 5,000 men, meaning 10,000 people with, with mothers and children, and they're out of food, they're hungry, it's too late for them to go find food in any villages, and Jesus takes five loaves and two fishes offered by a little boy, and he blesses it, and what happens? It multiplies to feed the 10,000 people with 12 baskets left over. That is performative speech. That's why the Hebrews took blessings and curses and oaths very seriously. The Hebrew father would bless his, his sons, usually the firstborn child at least, but maybe the other sons as well. And they took that seriously because they believed that when the father spoke the words of blessing, that blessing began to become a reality in the life of the, of the, the son. It's, it's somewhat akin to our expectations. The Caneo District, you may know, has a motto, high expectations, high achievement. Well, if we expect things from our children, they often fulfill those expectations. That's sort of a, a minor example of performative speech. But the ancient Hebrews also took curses very seriously. It was a very serious thing to curse somebody because you started that curse to be a reality in the life of that person. So to say to someone, you're a fool, was a very, very serious thing to do. And if they took an oath, they took that seriously. Because in speaking that oath, they pledged themselves to do as they had promised. And so they began to do the oath. So what God is doing in these rapid fire succession of rhetorical performative questions is by God's grace, he's opening Job to a transformed understanding and experience of who God truly is. You've heard people say, I'm sure I have, that the God of the Old Testament is God of judgment, he's harsh, he's vindictive, uh, seems capricious and arbitrary. And he's a God who pronounces judgment. 
Well, only part of that is true. He does have judgment because we see it time and time again in the prophets. There is judgment in the Old Testament. But the larger view, the greater view of God, even in the Old Testament, is that God is a God of grace. And we see it here in these rhetorical performative questions. As I said earlier, God initiated the conversations with Job. God invites Job into a sweeter, richer, fuller, more well-rounded relationship with him, the Almighty, the King of creation, the one and only true and living God. Now you've heard uh, Rob say, you've heard uh, Chad say, and you're going to hear me say that Job is, is difficult reading. And the scholars all say that the Hebrew language that it's written in is very, very difficult to translate. But the thing they come away with is that God takes the initiative to call us into a relationship with the Lord of the universe. And we see that because he takes the initiative to call us into this relationship and to deepen that relationship and have it grow, he's a God of grace. God of grace both throughout the Old Testament and through the New Testament. Now, here's the wonderful and encouraging truth. God's rhetorical, performative questions have the desired effect. Job evaluates himself, and in response to God's initiative of grace, and he confesses. So we turn now from God's questions to Job's answers. Job's first confession, his first answer to God was in uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and we read that. And what Job pledges to do is he says, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth, and not speak, because I've spoken about things that I just didn't understand. How many times have we said something that we wish we could have reached out in the air and grabbed it and pulled it back, but it was too late? It was hurtful. It was harmful. It was inappropriate. For me to think about the number of times when I have spoken hurtful, hateful, uh, insensitive, totally inappropriate words brings up great embarrassment. So much embarrassment, I'm not going to tell you any examples of what I've done. Now, Rob probably would, because he's open enough. But me, it's too embarrassing, so I'm not going to do that. But we all have. We've all spoken out of turn. And, and what Job is saying is, Lord, I, I've spoken out of turn. I, I spoke about things I really didn't know anything about. And then he pledges to listen more to God and speak less. Now, there is an appropriate place to begin to reassess our views of the nature and character of God to determine whether our view of God, our understanding of God, our constructs of God are too small. Now, there are many ways to listen to God. The first and principal one is through Scripture. Scripture is God's revelation. The wonderful thing that we find in Old and New Testament is God didn't remain hidden in the far reaches of the universe, but God revealed himself because he wanted humanity to know who he is, and he wanted to be in relationship with these, his creatures that he has created. 
And so God comes to his people, opening himself up to them. So we look at scripture, we read it, and it's God speaking to us. And so we listen to God speaking. We listen to God in worship. You know, the Zoom opportunity we have is a, uh, a good way for us to <clears throat> worship, given the nature of, of our situation with the pandemic. But there's nothing like the people of God being together physically in worship. Christ promises where two or three are gathered together, there he is in their midst. And there's something about the fact that we're gathered together, we're all singing the same words to the same tune. We're in unison and we're, we're praising God, we're confessing together as one. We hear the same scripture read. We say the same prayers. There's something that, that God has, has made worship to be something that there's no substitute for, that we must do together as the people of God. And there again is a place where we listen to hear the voice of God. Prayer. Obviously, we listen to God, especially silent, listening prayer. Now, that's very, very difficult to do. But you can train yourself over time to get rid of the distractions, the mind wandering, all of those things in order to hear the, the voice of God. Meditation. Take Jen's yoga class. There's good meditation in that. Discussions with friends you trust to talk about how you view God and understand God. Walks in nature. Very important. Observing art, whether it be statuary or good paintings, reading good literature. The list goes on how we can listen to God. And Job made a good start. But for some reason, it didn't take with God. God wants something different from Job. And so Job, God returns to the rhetorical formative questions. And he begins the question and asks Job questions again. Uh, have to find where I am. Hold on. There's another glitch that I was afraid of. Um, I'll get caught up here in a minute. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't do it for Job. Um, and I, you know, nobody knows why that's the case. Uh, scholars that I've read, the commentators, none of them know exactly why um, Job didn't. Uh, God didn't accept Job's confession. And so I probably can say anything I want here, and you know, if it makes sense, you can believe it. But you can decide why. But here's my take on this. I see that this first confession of Job is kind of a Hollywood confession. When I say Hollywood confession, you know, if my words or actions hurt anybody, I'm really sorry. Well, that's not good enough. A true confession, a true apology has no ifs. 
It has no explanations. It has no defense. It simply states the behavior that was done. And then you say you're truly sorry. You express your great remorse and regret. And then you ask for forgiveness. That's a true confession. That's not what we have here from Job. But now we have another confession from Job that is in chapter 46. And let me find that as well. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 42. So let me read that. This is 42, 1 to 6. And then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, and he's speaking to God now, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. And then Job responds, and here's his confession. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself on a repent in dust and ashes. So Job confesses. And now we see that he acknowledges the sovereignty of God, which is the best place when we're asserting uh, God's true being or assessing God's true being. He then confesses, I spoke of things that I didn't understand. Job was saying, my pride led me to be arrogant and I thought I knew who God is or who God should be more than God does. Another way of saying it, I think, is, Lord, my image of you is me, or of humans, written large. I have created you in my own image. And you, God, are to be judged by my standards, not the other way around. But the good thing is, Job doesn't stop there. He says, my ears have heard of you. I've known about you, Job is saying. I've had intellectual knowledge of who you are. Now my eyes have seen you. I have now moved from intellectual assent to personal acquaintance. The performative word of God, spoken in the questions of Job, has done its work. And that, my friends, is the nature of the God we love and serve. As Paul says, he begins a good work within us that he will bring to conclusion. And so here in these chapters of Job, we see the amazing grace of God who took the initiative to come to Job, to question him, that led Job to a new understanding and acquaintanceship with God. The relationship between God and Job grew, became deeper, more personal, and more profound. Now, these passages that we've considered today, I believe, are calling us to reassess our view of God, to ask ourselves, is our God too small?
remember this, God takes initiative, he comes to us because he desires a deeper, more personal relationship with us. And then God does the work of grace that leads us to that deeper relationship. Is your guard too small? It doesn't need to be that way. Because our God is working in you his good work.